It's uh, been a full day, Randy. Uh, let me thank those of you who have been here from this morning's first session and welcome those of you who have just joined us. Uh, we have now concluded the main portion of our Constitution Day uh, symposium brought to us uh, through the generosity of George M. Yeager, as I said at the outset. Um, after we finish uh, here, we will retire to the uh, Winter Garden for our reception. This lecture series was named in honor of a man who endowed it uh, together with the chair I'm honored to hold at Cato. Like so many uh, who came to, of age during the Depression and served in World War II, the greatest generation as they've been called, the late Ken Simon was a true friend of liberty. Following his service during the war, Ken earned a degree in engineering at Cornell, then returned to his native Pittsburgh where he started a manufacturing business, raised a family, and in time dedicated himself to furthering the ideas of America's founders that so animated his own life. Uh, with these, this series of lectures, uh, which is just one example of Ken's philanthropy, we've brought a distinguished group of judges, legal scholars, and practicing attorneys to the podium to discuss and help keep alive those basic constitutional principles. Our first Simon lecture, for example, was on constitutionalism and was given by Judge Douglas Ginsburg, uh, chief judge at that time of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Since then, the lectures have covered subjects ranging from property rights to religious freedom, economic liberty, the Ninth Amendment, education freedom, progressivism, and more, all aimed at um, honoring America's first principles. Today's Simon Lecture will be no exception, as the title for his 2014 tome published by the University of Chicago, uh, our speaker asked, is administrative law unlawful? That is the uh, tome that I hold right here, a veritable doorstop of a book. If you uh, don't have time to work your way through that, life is short after all, there has just come out a short praises of the book called The Administrative Threat, and there are copies available for those uh, who wish to have a copy. It's on a first-come, first-served basis, so please don't leave early, but it is out there. In any event, um, today um, uh, Professor Hamburger will apply some of the insights on that huge book to the threat administrative law poses for our civil liberties, the subject of his latest book from Encounter, The Administrative Threat. Professor Philip Hamburger is the Maurice and Hilda Friedman a Professor of Law at Columbia Law School, a graduate of Princeton and Yale Law School. He's a leading scholar of constitutional law and its history. He works also in other areas of the law, including religious liberty, freedom of speech, academic censorship, judicial review, the office and duty of judges, and the early development of liberal thought. His other books include Separation of Church and State from Harvard in 2002 and Law and Judicial Duty, again from Harvard in 2008. And I note in his bio an early essay likely to be of particular interest to this audience entitled Natural Rights, Natural Law, and American Constitutions, which appeared in 1983 in the Yale Law Journal. Before joining the Columbia Law faculty, Professor Hamburger was the John P. Wilson professor at the University of Chicago Law School. 
where he was the director of the Bigelow Program and the director of Chicago's Legal History Program. He has taught also at the law schools at George Washington University, University of Connecticut, University of Virginia, and Northwestern University, and he practiced law in Philadelphia, specializing in business and corporate tax, truly a renaissance man of the law. Please welcome Professor Philip Hamburg. Well, it's a great privilege to be here, and thank you all for joining me. I want to depress you. I want you leaving with your head down, worried about the fate of the nation. Maybe you already feel that way, but let me just pile on. I want to talk about the administrative threats of the liberties. Administrative power is the greatest threat to civil liberties in our era. No single development in our legal system deprives more Americans of more constitutional rights. Now, traditionally, most systematic threats to civil liberties came in attacks on particular groups, and this remains a problem. But increasingly, there are also broader threats which affect the civil liberties of all Americans. And administrative power is the primary example of this broad sort of danger. Indeed, we will see before this afternoon's over, I hope, that it is also of profound importance for understanding some of the more narrow discriminatory threats. It therefore is no exaggeration to say that it is our greatest threat to civil liberties. Now at the outset, I must emphasize this is a legal critique of administrative power, not an economic critique. Most complaints about administrative power are economic. It's said to be inefficient, dangerously centralized, burdensome on business, destructive of jobs, stifling for innovation and growth, et cetera. And all of you probably know that rather better than I. All of it's painfully true, but the economic complaints are not the entirety of the critique of administrative power. There are also constitutional objections, and the economic critique does not fully address these. Indeed, the economic critique tends merely to protest the degree of administrative power, and it thereby usually accepts the legitimacy of some administrative uh, regulation, as long as it's not too heavy-handed on business. And it's therefore no wonder that the economic critique has not really stopped the growth of administrative power. In contrast, the argument here is a legal challenge, that administrative power violates one constitutional freedom after another. And this argument is therefore not merely against administrative abuses or against inefficient or burdensome regulation. Um, rather than be for moderating administrative power, the point here is that all administrative power threatens our constitutional rights. Now, of course, in objecting to administrative powers unconstitutional, I am not denying that executive power is extensive. Uh, executive power includes not merely the power to execute the laws, but more broadly the power to execute the nation's lawful force. It thus includes the power to prosecute offenders in court, to exercise discretion in distributing benefits, to determine the status of immigrants, and so forth. The objection here is not to any of this, but rather to extra-legal attempts to impose legal obligation. Now, what do I mean by extra-legal attempts to impose legal obligation? That's a mouthful. Post-Benthamite theorists define, that includes most contemporary legal theorists, define law as a sovereign's command backed by coercion. But traditionally in America, law came with legal obligation, that is, an obligation to obey, not just fear. 
And working from underlying ideas about consent, early Americans assumed that a rule could have the obligation of law only if it came from the constitutionally established legislature elected by the people, and that a judicial decision could have such obligation only if it came from a constitutionally appointed judge exercising independent judgment. The US Constitution therefore places lawmaking power in Congress and judicial power in the courts, and the power to bind that is to create legal obligation, was in these departments, not in executive or independent agencies. But of course, as we all know, the government nowadays purports to create legal obligation through executive and other agency edicts. It binds Americans and deprives them of their liberty, not through acts of Congress and the courts, but through other mechanisms. And in this sense, administrative power is extra legal. It runs through paths other than merely law. Put another way, administrative power is an evasion of law. Now, rulers, if you look over history, are always tempted to exert more power with less effort. That's the leitmotif of all government. And they therefore are rarely content to govern merely through law. And this restless desire to escape its pathways, many of them work through other, these extra-legal mechanisms. English kings engaged in binding extralegal governance when they legislated through proclamations, regulations, interpretations, and they did that. That's not just a modern phenomenon. And they also did this when they adjudicated in the Star Chamber and the High Commission. They called this absolute power. Much of it was, by the way, was authorized by statute, but regardless of the statutory authorization, it was an extralegal mode of binding subjects that evaded the regular pathways, what we would call the constitutional pathways. American presidents similarly engage in extra-legal governance when they legislate through binding agency rules and interpretations and when they adjudicate through binding agency decisions. And as in the past, such power often has statutory authorization. But it remains an extra-legal pathway and a threat to constitutional freedom. It's not the Constitution's pathways. In particular, it is an evasion of the Constitution's legislative and judicial process. The danger of extra-legal power, of evasions of constitutional pathways, is thus enduring. Whether in monarchies or republicans, it's the same problem. There will always be those who seek to avoid the trouble of binding persons merely through acts of the legislature and the courts. Now, once one recognizes that administrative power is really just a type of evasion or of extra-legal power, something that has long existed, which runs outside the Constitution's pathways for binding Americans, then we can begin to see that the Constitution was actually drafted to bar this danger. As many of us, I think, know, apologists for administrative power say that it is a modern development which could not have been anticipated by the US Constitution. But early Americans actually were quite familiar with English constitutional history, and they therefore knew the danger of absolute or extra-legal power. 17th century English history centered on the attempts of kings to bind subjects extra-legally through absolute power and on the struggle of their subjects to establish constitutional limits on such power. I'm not going to recite the history in detail. If you want that, you can punish yourself by reading my book. <laughs> Suffice it to say that after King James I and Charles I openly ruled extra-legally with what they called their absolute prerogative, Parliament in 1641 abolishes their primary administrative or prerogative agencies, the Star Chamber, the High Commission, and various subordinate uh, agencies. And Parliament then engages in a civil war to defeat the king and his pretensions. James II repeats some of his namesake's evasions of law and thereby prompts the Revolution of 1688 and then the Declaration of Rights next year. And underlying all of these events were English constitutional ideas. 
Put simply, constitutional ideas develop in England precisely to defeat the extra-legal aspects of absolutism. The net result for us is that constitutional law was inextricably intertwined with an early version of what would become administrative power. Many constitutional commentators already in England say kings should rule only through acts of parliament and the courts, not through other edicts. Some added that under the English constitution, legislative powers in parliament, judicial power in the judges, and executive power in the crown. From this perspective, the English constitution leaves no room for the crown to bind subjects extra-legally. Now, early Americans are familiar with all of this, both the danger and the need for a constitutional response. And it's therefore profoundly mistaken to say the US Constitution could not have anticipated administrative power, and therefore, at best, it's ambiguous and so forth. Extra legal or absolute power was a familiar problem. Americans were determined in their constitutions to repudiate it far more systematically than had the English. Now, of course, the term administrative power was not yet ordinarily used in England or America. At it was occasionally used to describe administrators of wills, but that's not what we're dealing with here. Um, but absolute power was a known quantity, and in the US Constitution, Americans adopt structures and rights that systematically bar the danger. Now, let's get into details of the US Constitution. How exactly does the US Constitution bar administrative power? Most basically, the Constitution's structures preclude extra-legal or absolute power. Let's begin with Articles 1 and 3. Article 1 blocks extra-legal lawmaking by placing legislative power exclusively in Congress. Article 2 prevents extra-legal adjudication by placing judicial power in the courts. The Constitution thus authorizes only two pathways for binding Americans in the sense of imposing legal obligation on them. Now, there are some jurisdictional exceptions at the borders, in states, localities, but generally, the government can impose binding rules only through acts of Congress or treaties ratified by the Senate and impose binding adjudications only through acts of the courts. Other attempts to bind Americans by rule adjudication are unconstitutional under Articles 1 and 3. Now, these are not merely a matter of structure. We normally look at the Constitution and say, well, this part's structure, and this, these parts are rights, and they, never the two, two shall meet. But of course, they're inextricably intertwined. Binding agency rules deny Americans their rights under Article 1 to be subject to only such federal legislation as is enacted by Congress and administrative rules thereby dilute the constitutional right to vote, the point I'm going to get back to at the end of this talk. Binding agency adjudications deprive Americans of their right under Article 3 to be subject to only such federal decisions as come from a court with a real judge, with a jury, and with the full due process of law. Thus, even under Articles 1 and 3, there's a serious assault on civil liberties. But wait a minute. What about delegation? Administrative lawmaking is often justified as delegated power, as if Congress could divest itself of the power the people had delegated to Congress. But the Constitution, in fact, expressly bars the subdelegation. Wait a minute. You're going to protest. The Constitution contains no non-delegation clause, so how does it bar subdelegation? Perhaps Hamburger's seen, you know, read the Constitution so much he's seen things between the lines. Well, the answer comes in the Constitution's first substantive word. The document begins: "All, all legislative powers herein granted shall be in a vested in a Congress, etc." If all legislative powers are in Congress, they cannot be elsewhere. And if the grant were merely permissive, not exclusive, there would be no reason for the word all. You don't need the word all if you want just a permissive grant. That word bars subdelegation. 
The Constitution's barrier to subdelegation of legislative power may sound merely technical. You know, we're, we're now in, sounds like structured, how does this really affect Americans? But it actually gives crucial expression to a very basic principle which underlies the efficacy of constitutions. The logic is that once the people delegate legislative power to their legislature, any subdelegation would allow the government to evade the structure established by the people. And of course, as we know, this is exactly what has happened. Now, I could say more about the Constitution's structure, for example, about waivers and federalism, about the implications for civil liberties, but I think you can imagine where that would go, and time is short. So as to structure, I'll simply summarize. To be sure, the United States remains a republic, but administrative power creates within it a very different sort of government. And the result is a state within a state, an administrative state within the Constitution's United States, which deprives Americans of their freedom to make and unmake their own laws. Now let's turn away from structure to enumerated rights. In fact, the enumerated rights are part of the structure of the Constitution. They simply refine the grant of powers by subtracting some power. But people treat it as different from structure. And when people talk about civil liberties, they often have in mind the Bill of Rights. So let's talk about those rights, those enumerated rights, especially its procedural rights. The administration, administrative violation of these rights makes especially clear that this is an assault on civil liberties. Let's begin with due process. The Fifth Amendment guarantees the due process of law. And in defense of administrative adjudication, it's often suggested that due process is centrally a limit on the courts. It's not so much a limit on other parts of government. So don't worry too much about those administrative tribunals. But guarantees of due process of law develop precisely to bar extra-legal adjudications. Rather than merely set a standard for courts, they evolved primarily to bar adjudication outside the courts. How do we know this? Well, the principle of due process becomes constitutionally significant already in the 14th century in English due process statutes, which are familiar to everyone ever since, I guess until these days when it's no longer taught in law schools. Uh, already in these statutes, Due process is guaranteed to bar binding prerogative or administrative adjudication. The principle was summarized at the head of the 1368 statute, one of a number of statutes, and it was, and I quote, none should be put to answer without the due process of law. On this principle, the English asserted due process of law against medieval consular decisions, which weren't really in court, um, and later against the High Commission and the Star Chamber in the 17th century. And Americans, knowing all of this history, guarantee the principle of the Fifth Amendment. Now, was this really understood at the time? Well, one of the earliest academic commentators in the US Bill of Rights recognized the implications. In the 1790s, St. George Tucker, Virginia judge, lectures on the Constitution at William and Mary. He and when he comes to the Fifth Amendment, he quotes its due process clause, and he concludes, I quote, due process of law must then be had before a judicial court or a judicial magistrate. Can't get much clearer than that. Similarly, Chancellor Kent explained that the due process of law means law and its regular course of administration through courts of law. And Justice Joseph Story echoes both Tucker and Kent. So much for administrative adjudication. Nonetheless, nowadays, the government often imposes fines and other penalties in administrative proceedings. Administrative adjudication repeatedly, in other words, every day violates the due process of law. Let's turn to jury rights. Like due process, the right to a jury bars administrative and other administrative adjudication. Juries are available only in courts. Right? If, if you're offered something that looks like a jury by administrative 
tribunal. It still isn't a jury. And of course, you don't get that in administrative tribunals. And the right to a jury in both civil and criminal cases bar, thus bars administrative adjudication adjudication of the tribunals. Now, early Americans understood this quite well. So for example, in the decade after American independence, the legislatures of New Jersey and New Hampshire authorized judicial proceedings before justices of the peace. Uh, New Jersey provides for ketam forfeiture proceedings with a six-man jury in front of a justice of the peace, who ordinarily doesn't um, have common law jurisdiction and can't have a jury. And New Hampshire authorizes small claim actions without a jury. Rather than accept these evasions of regular judicial proceedings, the courts in both states, in New Jersey in 1780, New Hampshire in 1786, actually six times in New Hampshire, the courts hold the statutes void for violating the right to a jury. Now, although the US Constitution in 1788 guarantees juries only in criminal cases, this, of course, prompts an outcry for civil jury rights in civil cases. In fact, in fact probably nothing provo provokes more of an outcry against the Constitution than that it does not provide for juries in civil cases. And the Seventh Amendment, therefore, secures the right to a jury in suits at common law. Now, if instead the amendment had provided for juries in common law actions, it would have allowed the government to avoid juries in statutory actions. And if it had provided for juries in existing common law actions, it would have allowed the government to to avoid juries in newly created actions. But the phrase suits of common law meant civil suits brought in common law system as opposed to suits in equity or admiralty. And this was understood by everybody at the time. The words thus make clear that the amendment does not exclude statutory actions, let alone statutory actions um, in administrative proceedings or, or administrative proceedings authorized by statute. Instead, it secures juries in all civil cases other than those in equity and admiralty. But of course, it's different now. The Supreme Court says that the government's interest in constitutionally authorized administrative adjudication trumps the right to a jury. In the court's strange locution, where the government is acting administratively to enforce newly created st or, uh, statutory public rights, its public, the government's public rights defeat the private assertion of constitutional jury rights. This is really pretty weird. The, the court, Supreme Court in the 19th century had used the term public rights as a label for the lawful sphere of executive action. But in Atlas Roofing in 19, uh, 19, 1977 and in some other cases, the court unmoors the phrase from its traditional usage and uses it to displace the Seventh Amendment right to a jury in civil cases. Now, no government power can sweepingly defeat a constitutional right, because the constitutional rights are limits in government power. In other words, rights trump powers. Of course, we can ask about compelling government interests, perhaps, and figuring out the extent of a right. But the rights trump powers, not vice versa. The court understood this. So the court in Atlas Roofing recasts administrative power as a right, indeed, that public right. And in effect, it denigrated the constitutional right to a jury as a mere private right. And so it could say that the government's public right defeats the merely private constitutional right. Where this would lead, if you applied generally, is to leave us without a Bill of Rights at all, right? Now, administrative adjudication violates yet other procedural rights. I don't want to run through them all. We don't have time. Uh, but just generally, uh, let's pause to consider how the Constitution's procedural rights are drafted. First, they're mostly in the passive voice. 
Rather than actively state the courts cannot violate various procedures, the procedural rights are stated in the passive voice and they thereby limit government in general, all parts of it, including Congress and the executive. Second, notice that they're placed at the end of the Constitution. That wasn't the original plan. Initially, the drafters of the Bill of Rights thought they'd rewrite particular articles of the Constitution in the body of the Constitution. But if they had simply modified Article 3, for example, they would have limited only the courts. And this would have been inadequate. Their goal was to limit all of government. And so to do that, to include limits on Article 3 power and Article 1, Article 1, 2, and 3 power, they ultimately had to add their amendments at the end of the Constitution so that procedural rights could limit all parts of government. And these two drafting techniques, the passive voice and amendments at the end, give the procedural rights their breadth in limiting all parts of government, thus borrowing all binding adjudication outside the courts, including administrative adjudication. But of course, things have changed. Agencies now bind in adjudications outside the courts without judges and juries. They issue summons, subpoenas, warrants, and fines without the due process of law of the courts. They deny equal discovery as required to due process in civil cases. Um, they impose prosecutorial discovery Government gets to get discovery from defendants, which is forbidden by due process in cases that are criminal in nature, and much administrative proceedings are criminal in nature. And they even reverse the burdens of proof and persuasion as required by due process. Some of this is done openly, some of it's done silently, but some ALJs have begun to speak up about this. And agencies thereby repeatedly deprive us of our procedural rights. The seriousness of the administrative evasion of procedural rights has not been sufficiently recognized. But when one begins to think about it, one begins to see structural changes of a profound sort. Because the government now enjoys ambidextrous enforcement. The government once could engage in binding adjudication against Americans only through courts and their judges. Now it can choose administrative adjudication. Sometimes Congress makes this decision. Sometimes it leaves it to an agency, such as the SEC. But one way or another, the government can choose. It can act ambidextrously, either through the courts and their judges, juries, and due process, or through the more convenient administrative adjudication, its foe process. And this evasion changes the very nature of procedural rights. Such rights traditionally were assurances against government. Now they're actually just one of the options for government, one of the choices for government in its exercise of power. The government must respect these rights when it proceeds against us in court, but it can escape them simply by taking another path. So procedural rights have been just transformed. They're no longer guarantees for the people. They're no longer really rights. Instead, they're merely options for the government and its proceedings against us. It can choose. It's difficult to think of a more serious civil liberties problem for the 21st century. Now, unfortunately, the loss of procedural rights in administrative tribunals is not the end of the matter. The deprivation of procedural rights actually persists in the courts. And this is something the courts haven't yet wrapped their minds around. Uh, but they need to be educated on this because this will get their attention. Because the courts participate in the violations, we actually have a double violation of rights by agencies and then by the courts themselves. Let's start with judicial deference to agency interpretation. When courts defer to agency interpretations, whether under Chevron, Auer, Meet Skidmore, et cetera, the judges are abandoning their office or duty of independent judgment. Indeed, where the government is a party to the case, the doctrines that require judicial deference to agency interpretation are actually pre-commitments in favor of the government's legal position. And the effect is systematic bias in violation of the due process of law. 
Put bluntly, Chevron deference to agency interpretation of statutes is really Chevron bias. Our deference to agency interpretations of rules is our bias. And although Mead-Skidmore respect is less predictable, um, it also is a form of bias. All such deference requires courts to put a thumb on the scale, sometimes a fist on the scale, in favor of one of the parties where the government is a party of the proceedings. And this violate, grossly violates the most basic due process rights to be judged without any judicial pre-commitment to the other party. Now, this is bad enough, but it gets worse because courts also defer to agency fact-finding. When a court reviews an agency adjudication, the judges rely on agency fact-finding as preserved in the administrative record. And this deprives party, private parties of their right to a jury trial. Juries, like other procedural rights, are constitutional right in the first instance, not merely when one later gets to court. And by the way, early, um, early cases in the 1780s recognize, explicitly recognized this. But even after one appeals from an agency to a court, one still today does not get a jury trial. Even worse is the bias in fact-finding. Where the government's a party to a case, once again, we have a problem. Judges are relying on a record that is merely one party's version of the facts. The judges thus are favoring one of the parties, and this is not merely bias in the law, but also in the facts. Now remember, of course, in most cases that I know of, there are only two types of questions, right? They're questions of law and they're questions of fact. So where there's systematic judicial bias in favor of the government on both the law and the facts, what is left for unbiased judgment? The judicial bias actually continues even after courts hold agency actions unlawful. Courts usually hesitate to declare an unlawful agency action void. Instead, they often remand it to the agency. Imagine a private party being told that it's being remanded back to you to reconsider what you did. And under the Brand X doctrine, agencies can actually disregard judicial precedent about the interpretation of statutes, thus depriving us of our due process right to actually litigate and get some results that are binding and in the way of precedent. The administrative assault on the Constitution's procedural rights is thus pervasive. Administrative adjudication denies many of these rights in agency proceedings, and then in defense of administrative power, the courts add their own assaults on procedural rights. And the result is this double violation of rights. And if, even if the court really doesn't care about the administrative violations of the Constitution, I wish they would at least care about their own violations. The most basic administrative assault on civil liberties, and this is what I'm going to end on, actually goes much further than what we've seen thus far. The most basic assault on civil liberties concerns equal voting rights. And here we get back to that intersection with the discrim narrow discriminatory type of threat. If you think back, what are the two most important, the two preeminent developments in federal law since the Civil War? One has been equal voting rights. The other has been the administrative state. And we therefore have to just pause and ask, is there a connection between them? Federal law was very slow to protect equal suffrage. In 1870, the 15th Amendment gives blacks the right to vote. In 1920, women acquired this right. 1965, equality for Blacks began to become a widespread reality. And interestingly, administrative power tended to expand in the wake of expanded suffrage. I'm not the only one to have noted this. Tom, Thomas West noted at least parts of it some years ago. But let's pursue it in more detail. Um, to be precise, in, 17, sorry, in 18, 
1987, Congress establishes the first major federal agency, the ICC. 1930s, the New Deal creates many powerful new agencies. And since the 1960s, federal administrative power has massively expanded. Now, of course, it would be a mistake to link administrative power too narrowly to salient dates in the history of voting rights. But popular participation in representative politics has been accompanied by a shift of legislative power out of Congress and into administrative agencies. And the explanation is not that hard to find. Although equality in voting rights has been widely accepted, the resulting democratization has prompted some misgivings. Worried about the rough and tumble character of representative politics and about the tendency of newly enfranchised groups to reject progressive reforms, many Americans sought what they considered a more elevated form of government. Now, some early progressives were actually quite candid about this. Uh, Woodrow Wilson complains, and I'm quoting now, the reformer is bewildered by the need to persuade a voting majority of several millions. And he's especially worried about the diversity of the nation, which meant that the reformer needed to influence, and I quote, the mind not only of America, not of Americans of the older stocks only, but also of Irishmen, Germans, and Negroes. And he elaborated this point, observing, the bulk of mankind is rigidly unphilosophical, and nowadays the bulk of mankind votes. And where is this unphilosophical bulk of mankind more multifarious in its composition than the United States? So, and again I'm quoting, in order to get a footing for new doctrine, one must influence the minds cast in every mold of race, minds inheriting every bias of environment, warped by the histories of a score of different nations, warmed or chilled, closed or expanded by almost every climate of the globe. I don't want to blame Montesquieu for this. This is purely Wilson. Rather than try to persuade such persons, Wilson, Wilson welcomes administrative governance, modeled, of course, on Bismarck. The people could still have the republic, but much legislative power would be shifted out of an elected body into the hands of the right sort of people. Now, far from being just narrowly a matter of racism, this has been a transfer of legislative power to what I would call the knowledge class, meaning not class defined in Marxist terms, but those persons who identity, whose identity or a sense of self-worth centers on their knowledge. And more than merely the intelligentsia, this class includes all who are more attached to the authority of knowledge than to the authority of local political communities. Now, of course, this is not to say that this class has been particularly knowledgeable. Um, when teachers in a university, this becomes abundantly apparent every day. But rather that their sense of affinity with cosmopolitan knowledge, rather than local connectedness, has been the foundation of their influence and identity. And in appreciating the knowledge that they, sorry, appreciating the authority that they attribute to their, their knowledge and distrusting the tumultuous politics of the diverse people of America, they've gradually moved legislative power out of Congress and into administrative agencies to be exercised, well, you know, in more genteel ways by people like themselves. And I might say by people like ourselves, because most of us, of course, are of that class, only Perhaps some of us suffer from false consciousness. Of course, the removal of legislative power from representatives of a diverse people has implications for minorities. So even where, as very often today, it is not centrally racist, uh, even where it's more about class, it doesn't mean it doesn't have racial consequences. Leaving aside Wilson's overt racism, the problem is the relocation of legislative or lawmaking power a further step away 
from the people and into the hands of a relatively homogenized class. So even when it's solicited, this power is exercised with a solicitude for minorities, it's a sort of power exercised from above. And those who dominate the administrative state have always been, well, if not white men, at least members of the knowledge class. And it therefore should be no surprise that administrative power comes with costs for classes and attachments that are more apt to find expression through representative government. In contrast to the power exercised by elected members of Congress, administrative power comes with little or no accountability, let alone sympathy for local, regional, religious, or other distinctive communities. Uh, there will be such sympathy if it's consistent with the centralized and homogenized tastes of the knowledge class, but not necessarily otherwise. So individually, administrators may be concerned about all Americans, and I'm inclined to think well of all administrators. I don't see them personally as a threat. But their power is structured in a way designed to cut off political demands with which, in a representative system of government, local and other distinctive communities can protect themselves. So administrative power, I don't think, can be understood apart from equal voting rights. These two are inextricably connected. The gain in popular suffrage has been accompanied by a disdain for the choices made through a representative system and a corresponding shift of legislative power out of Congress. And although the redistribution of legislative power has gratified the knowledge class, let's be very blunt, it makes an utter mockery of the struggle for equal voting rights. It reduces equal voting rights to a sort of bait and switch, right? The bait is equal voting rights, the switch is administrative power. And I think this confirms how severely administrative power threatens civil liberties. So just to sum up, administrative power, I think inescapably is a profound threat to civil liberties, and this has to be our focus. It denies us our freedom to be bound only by laws made by our elective, elected legislature. It denies us our freedom only to be bound by adjudications in courts. It guts, it simply guts our constitutional procedural rights, turning us, right, these rights into mere options for government. And this massive violation of procedural rights happens not only in administrative proceedings, but in the courts themselves. The courts are directly implicated in this. And in this sense, administrative power corrupts judicial proceedings. I don't want to say the judges are corrupt, but judicial proceedings have been corrupted. And it makes administrative power one of the most shameful episodes in the history of the federal judiciary. And of course, in gutting procedural rights, administrative power also threatens substantive rights, such as freedom of speech, as evident in the growing administrative licensing of words. It's now nearly pervasive in the federal government. Last but not least, administrative power undermines equal voting rights. The people are told they have equal rights in voting for the lawmakers, but in reality, legislative power has been largely shifted out of the legislature. Such is the fate of civil liberties in America. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Hamburger. We're now going to open it up to your questions. Uh, please wait until the microphone arrives. Uh, identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have, and please make it in the form of a question. If we, we could start this uh, gentleman right over here against the wall. Uh, Carl Excuse Gallagher. me, before, and I'm going to ask for um, hands on this side too so we can move along more quickly. Go ahead. 
Yes, Carl Golovin, endthefed.info. If I could draw a link between your uh, assessment of the voting situation and how it relates to the development of the monetary or the credit system, in that now anyone give, uh, corporations can give an unlimited amount to uh, political uh, candidates or uh, PACs so that it's the money in the corporations that decide who the candidates are we can vote for. And all this goes back to uh, the administrat administrative state has expanded ever since we left the limitation that no state should make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt. Um, the expanding system of credit allows corporatism to, to dominate. And if I could just offer a um, moment of success in the victory against administrative law, the city of Alexandria, I took a parking ticket to court arguing that it would be unconstitutional to impose a fee penalty penalty, fine, or court cost upon me in our current system of credit because it's just not constitutional. And the, the judge did not want to grant it, but the Commonwealth's attorney actually took no position on the motion to dismiss. So the judge dismissed it, uh, granted the motion to dismiss. So uh, if we address the monetary issue, uh, we would never tolerate all of these regulations if, if we had an honest unit of account as our money. Well, thank you. I actually had never thought as the monetary system as an avenue for defeating all of administrative power, um, but uh, it's interesting. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, Stephen Keat, a private citizen. Um, I recognize your points about you know the dangers of the administrative state, but it seems to me, and I'd like you to tell me if I'm wrong or not, that this is largely what our legislative bodies want. I think, for example, of the Congress right now, it's not happy about uh, President Trump's, uh, what it views as his attitudes towards Russia. So they voted dramatically to bring him under, as they would say, under control on this issue. So in a similar way, if they wanted to rein in the administrative state, they could. So isn't this something, a bipartisan thing, that they really want this, if you look at their actions as opposed to what their words may be? Um, yes, and I, I actually would take that further. It's not just Congress, it's we the people. Uh, I think Mencken said that the American people deserve to get what they want, and they deserve to get it good and hard. Uh, and, uh, but... Uh, the Constitution, of course, limits legislative power as well as the other branches. And uh, the whole point of law is to limit us even when we want what it forbids. So I don't really care if Congress wants it. Uh, that, is, that is the source of the problem. That's right. Uh, but it's not going to stop me from arguing against it as unconstitutional. To elaborate on that, but what if the people want it? I mean, if the people demand ever more goods and services, don't the administrative agencies follow right. to administer all those programs? Right. So I have two thoughts on that. One is this is what education is for. That's what this That's forum right. is for. Um, but also, when we talk about the people, maybe we should ask which people. And in the case of administrative power, uh, it, there really is reason to fear that it's about one part of the people imposing themselves on another part of the people and deprive them of their right to vote. And if you ask yourself, well, don't we have a fairly alienated politics these days? Aren't many Americans disgusted with Congress and other branches of government? Uh, maybe one reason is Americans have been excluded from their modes of self-government, uh, not just the jury, but also the right to vote. You get to vote, but excuse me, most legislative power isn't in the bot people that you elect. So I would suggest if you want a less alienated populace, one approach you might take 
is stop stealing their right to vote. So the people are their own worst enemy. Oh, we always are. Yes. You and me too, right? Uh, <clears throat> thank you. You wanted to depress us, and in my case, you succeeded. I have a, 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 a simple question and a more complex question. The simple question is, do you consider the tax court as part of the judicial system or as part of the administrative power? And the more complex question is, um, to those who would say that you can always appeal uh, a decision of the administrative state to the courts, would you respond that the problem of deference is the main difficulty with doing that? Or do you think even if you could somehow overcome the deference problem, it's still not sufficient that the administrative uh, power is still going to be a problem? Right. Um, there's been a tendency to shift uh, to, to shift um, judicial power into courts that are called courts with persons who are called judges, and these are separate from the ALJ system. Uh, but let's face it, we have one judicial system under the Constitution with, with real judges. That's it. Uh, for distribution of benefits, for immigration questions, one constitutionally can have some other decision-making bodies within the executive, but I don't see any middle ground. And as so often in law, when you try to find a reasonable middle ground, what one's really talking about is whittling away one's liberty. And uh, one may say, well, I trust the IRS, but some of us disagree. Um, as, as for appeals, yes, appeals are not always very appealing, are they? Because uh, for a host of reasons. For one thing, these are rights, these constitutional rights procedure are rights in the first instance. And we now have a doctrine of, uh, of exhaustion of administrative remedies, which actually is a doctrine of exhaustion of administrative defendants, right? So by the time, I can't tell you how many phone calls I get in the middle of the night from former bankers or others who are now bankrupt, and they say, well, I, I, I fought them at the state level, but now I have to, in, you know, state administrative agency, but now I have to go to the courts. I'm bankrupt. I can't afford a lawyer. Will you help me find one? And my usual answer is, sorry, can't help you. It's some sort of hang dog about it, but I, I can't help them. Uh, so for one thing, these are rights in the first instance. Moreover, when you talk about deference, you might as well also talk, you know, what you're really talking about is due process, you're talking about jury rights, and then there are a host of other things, uh, such as burdens of proof and the rest. And so it's not just one of these rights, it's all of them. Yes, right over here. Sure. Oh, okay. Uh, Stanley Cook with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Within the last year or so, my agency, without any clearance, Justice Department or OPM or the Amer Administrative Procedure Act, has introduced a so-called harassment statute. It has no due process rights. There's no right of cross-examination. An administrator interviews both sides and makes a decision. There's no uh, right of appeal. It's all in-house. To govern whom? Folks within the EPA? Uh, it would be employees, potentially contractors, but in-house situation. So this sort of thing raises complex questions, and I, I, without seeing it, it's hard for me to say. Uh, and the reason I say this is because uh, the executive has great authority in hiring and firing folks, right? And in, just making, and in making contracts. And so uh, it can imitate judicial proceedings for purposes of making executive decisions governing its, its officers and employees without those having to meet 
ordinary judicial standards. So without, without actually seeing it and seeing the statutory rights that folks have, I, I hesitate to comment. But there could be issues. It depends. Tim Sandifer, who in this audience needs no introduction. Then I won't. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was going to ask um, sort of an, an abstract philosophical question, and that is your theory about the voting rights theory or of the origin of the administrative state I find very interesting and very persuasive. But um, I wondered if you could compare it to Hannah Arendt. In her origin of totalitarianism, she points the finger uh, of the origin of the bureaucratic state at colonialism, particularly colonialism in Africa, and it being sort of a military rule. And that, that is the origin of what she calls the rule of cleverness, which is her phrase for, for bureaucracy, as opposed to the rule of law. It seems to me that a good example of that in the United States is what is notoriously, I think, generally considered the worst of all administrative agencies, which is the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which predates the Interstate Commerce Commission by a good 50, 60 years, um, and is a good example, I think, of military rule metastasizing into the bureaucratic state. I'd be interested in, in how you would compare that view with yours. Ultimately, I don't know. I'd have to dig into it. Uh, I, I'm a little suspicious of the theory, um, but I do like the military analogy. Uh, the, the folks who are n normally considered the the architects of our administrative state uh, wrote, talk a lot about what they do and can look at their publications, their private papers, in Wilson's case, his lecture notes, and they, they draw it from Germany. Almost all of them go to Germany. Wilson can't go to Germany, so he teaches himself German. Um, the, uh, in fact, he, his lectures are just copies of German treatises, administrative treatises, and the places where he is original, it turns out, are just where his German wasn't good enough. Um, <laughs> This, this, this was discovered by a wonderful gentleman, Robert Mewald, who sadly died before I had a chance to meet him, one of the funnier and more learned scholars of early American administrative power. Uh, but there is a key element to the theory you mentioned that I think is surely true, which is the analogy to military control. The Prussians were explicit about this. Uh, the Prussians militarized their society. And although they had a legislature, the administrative command was understood to be a command to civilians of the same sort as a command to uh, civil officers and the same sort of thing as a command to junior military officers. It's all simply sovereign command. This is the danger of the post-Benthamite vision of law. Um, and that's very, very disturbing. And interestingly, some of the early American advocates of administrative power, like Frank Goodnow, are quite explicit about this. They really like this idea, because it gives you a unified theory of law. It's all simply sovereign command. Uh, uh, where the militarization of society led to in Germany, we all know. Uh, Max Weber uses a word, he didn't invent it, but he uses it nicely, um, Ordnungsmenschen. Um, Ordnungsmenschen are the people who are only comfortable if there's a sort of order above them and they can be told what to do. These are people who have deprived themselves of their sense of self-governance. And this is the profound danger that Tocqueville saw, and I, the danger is we will become all Ordnungsmenschen. And Wilson's antipathy to the Constitution and uh, affinity with... Uh, the parliamentary system plays right into that theme. That yes, and, and for him, alluding to the parliamentary system, I think is a way of making palatable his underlying views, which are just echo the Germans. Um, the Germans from the 18th century, you know, 18th century onward 
our German academics uh, who want positions from the crown uh, make fun of constitutions, the separation of powers, any limitations on the executive, and so forth. They think there should be separate court systems, that administrative matters should not be in regular court systems, and not, should not be fully appealable to, you know, you see where this goes. Um, we've copied a lot of German absolutist doctrine, and we call it administrative law. It's really creepy. And now it's the zeitgeist, if I may. Yes. So thank you for the critique, very powerful critique. And, if, and if, to me, one of the things that makes it so powerful is that it doesn't matter what you think about any particular agency, food, drugs, Indian affairs, anything. It's, it's, for, it's generality. Um, but of course, it would be very radical for us to abolish the state without transferring those functions anyplace else. And, the, and people may rightly or wrongly continue to want food and drug policy or environmental policy. So if, if we go beyond critique and try and figure out how could this happen, do you have any thoughts about how, how to reclaim our liberty and put some of your critique into practice? Right. So one member of this audience, Randy, um, has suggested that the transfer of power, um, actually I wouldn't call it a transfer, it simply reverts back to the people, it belongs to the people, and they simply have to reclaim it. Um, now that may not happen wholesale, which is your, your, the focus of your question, right? Uh, but that just because the critique is wholesale doesn't mean the steps we take can't be retail, right? Uh, if Congress was so inclined or the president was so inclined, we could see a step-by-step -step reversion back to the constitutional norm. For example, the president could simply ask one agency after another, send your regulations to Congress, have Congress adopt them as statute or not, and don't adopt any more regulations. And you know, one could do that step-by-step, -step, see what happens, and try it with another agency, and then another agency, starting with small agencies. It would be very gradualist. Edmund Burke would approve, right? Um, another approach is just a slightly different way to do the same thing is through litigation. That's what I hope to do. Um, and uh, I think through litigation, one can attack do the, this doctrine by doctrine. Um, you know, take Chevron, which has been much discussed. Um, I'm told that getting rid of Chevron is revolutionary. Well, you know, I'm not sure about that. Uh, Congress would simply have to pass statutes giving express authorization for these regulations. It's not that revolutionary, but at least then Congress will have acted. So I think one can do this in very moderate ways. Andy Klausner from Reason. Uh, well, you're, uh, this is a great concluding conclusion for, the, uh, for a great conference. Your work is inspiring for anybody who takes liberty seriously and the founder's constitution. I'm curious what kind of support you feel you're getting among your colleagues at Columbia and generally in academia. <laughs> well, I, mu I must say, I've, I've never felt more comfortable at a law school than at Columbia. Maybe that's a reflection of other law schools. But um, I, I, in all seriousness, uh, Columbia has a tradition of civility that notwithstanding the range of views or the limited range of views is, uh, leads to my being treated very well, and I, I, I can have no complaint. Do I have much of a conversation with colleagues about this? Well, that's a different matter. And the conversation, I think, inevitably, these are views that are not going to be fashionable even in many Republican circles, right? So the conversation inevitably has to extend beyond one's institution. But gee, isn't that the nature of the web? And this is as good a time as any to mention one of my theories of progress. You know, if you think about it, um, it wasn't Henry VIII who destroyed the monasteries. The printing press came along, and suddenly knowledge 
was not confined within those walls. Knowledge was amongst apprentices, reading by night, little, little dollar tracks and the like. And that just rendered knowledge no longer a monopoly of those institutions. Now we have the web. I can correspond with colleagues if I question. I can contact anyone around the world in a matter of seconds. Uh, so the institution is wonderful, but I don't, I don't need it in the same way, which may have suggestions as to what we should fund or not fund in the way of education, but that's another conversation. Well, it's time now to draw this wonderful day to a conclusion and uh, retire to celebrate it uh, with a little uh, libation. And so I want to again thank uh, the George M. Yeager for his support of uh, this Constitution Day program and the late um, Ken Simon for his support of the lecture that you have just heard. And so can we conclude, please, with a warm round of applause for Professor Andrews.